pray with me as we begin. Beloved Heavenly Father, these things that we're considering from your word this morning go right to the heart of what makes us useful to you. Humble us to hear and to respond to you this morning and to be better agents from now on because we receive what your word has so clearly revealed. We ask it in Jesus' perfect name. Amen. Good morning. The matter that we are considering from God's word this morning has been very much on my personal radar for several years. <laughs> and I'm sure you'll all find this very hard to believe, but I used to be wrong on this issue. <laughs> That's a joke, of course. Not the part about me being wrong, but the, the part about it being hard for anyone to believe that. <laughs> Back in the mid-90s, at the height of the, the Promise Keepers movement, I was one of the guys arguing that accountability groups were a distortion of God's design for his church. I argued that if our love for God and our gratitude to him for saving us isn't enough to drive us to godliness, then having to answer to other sinners isn't going to help. When a brother in Christ told me that he had finally experienced consistent victory in his battle to turn away from pornography because of the faithful work of other brothers to check up on him and hold him accountable, I had to bite my tongue to avoid saying to him that that victory was almost certain to crumble as soon as those brothers stopped checking on him. My position was that if, if you can't be disciplined in the Word of God or have a vibrant prayer life or share your faith with the lost or control your mouth or resist a porn addiction without having to have other Christians checking up on you, then your heart isn't really in the whole sanctification thing. If the desire to please God won't move you to genuine godliness, then your efforts to please people certainly won't. While I still hold firmly to that last statement, a whole lot has changed about my understanding of how God faithfully uses men as his agents to grow my desire to please him. I can now say with no fear of misrepresenting God that gratefully receiving God's use of other men in his work to conform me to Christ is an entirely, entirely different matter than doing godly-looking things to please men. In fact, it has nothing to do with pleasing men. There's no denying the simple fact that for the last nine years, I have been in an accountability group. <laughs> it's called the CBC Elders. And the work of the Holy Spirit in my heart and my life through those eight beloved brothers has been profound. But the change in my understanding of the role of human agency in the believer's sanctification came about 
not from my experience, but as I reckoned with what the Bible actually says about this foundational matter. And what is that? What does the Bible actually teach us about God holding men accountable to himself through other men? Well, it's actually pretty hard to, to figure out where to start to address that question because this aspect of human agency shows up in God's work in the lives of countless individuals in the Bible. God held Abraham accountable to himself through Pharaoh and Abimelech, the two pagan rulers that Abraham lied to about his wife Sarah. God held Judah accountable through his dead son's Gentile widow, Tamar. God held Saul accountable through both Samuel and David. God held Balaam accountable to himself through a donkey. Okay, that one doesn't count because that's not through a man. But <laughs> I couldn't resist pointing it out. Our just completed study through the book of Jeremiah reminded us over and over that God held the entire nation of the Judahites accountable to himself through his prophet Jeremiah, not to mention through a foreign king named Nebuchadnezzar. In the Gospels, God called the Jews to account to the true standard of his law, his character, his ways, over and over and over through Jesus. Now, Jesus, of course, is a special case in all of this, and I intend to devote the whole last message of this series to considering how perfectly Jesus and his sinless humanity fulfilled God's design for human agency. But God used imperfect agents to hold the Jews accountable to himself throughout the Old Testament, and he continued doing so in the New Testament through men like Peter and James and John and Stephen. And God has been using men and women to hold his redeemed saints accountable to himself ever since he created the church. And that accountability goes in all directions. God held one of Christ's own chosen apostles, Peter, accountable to himself quite forcefully through another chosen apostle, Paul, when Peter, according to Paul, was, quote, not being straightforward about the truth of the gospel. That uncompromising correction is recorded in Galatians chapter 2. Could God have spoken directly to each of these people or groups of people without using the agency of other people? Of course he could, <laughs> but he didn't. And that's because most of what God does in the world to hold his image bearers and agents accountable to himself, he does through other image bearers and agents. Countless times in both testaments of God's word, God used men and women as his agents to commission, teach, reprove, rebuke, exhort, and admonish his people. I loved it 
at last Sunday's worship meeting when Bob Deffenbaugh pointed out that in Acts chapter 9, even though the resurrected Jesus appeared directly to Saul of Tarsus, whom we know mostly as Paul, and blinded him to give him sight, Jesus then immediate, immediately used the agency of a Jewish believer named Ananias to deliver to Saul the rest of the story of God's intentions to use Paul as his own chosen instrument. Quote, to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, end quote. See, Jesus used Ananias as his chosen agent to commission Paul as his chosen agent to bring the gospel to the Gentiles throughout the Roman Empire. Nobody is exempt here, not even apostles of Christ. Since God could have done all of these critical communications with people all by himself without the involvement of other people, or of people at all, isn't, isn't this a terribly inefficient way for God to get things done? Not if he created human beings to act as his agents. And that's exactly what we saw last week. He declared on the very first page of the Bible. And because that's exactly what God says about his intention for mankind, this all makes perfect sense. In fact, it would make no sense at all if God's dealings with men didn't usually involve the agency of other men. The life of David is a great template for this, this wonderful truth. 1 Samuel chapter 25 relates the story of how God used a wise woman named Abigail to restrain David from violating God's character by violently avenging himself against Abigail's foolish husband. Abigail's husband, Nabal, whose name means fool, <laughs> was a very wealthy man, but his foolishness far exceeded his wealth. When Nabal's workers were shearing sheep, his sheep, in the city of Carmel, David, who was still fleeing for his life from King Saul at the time, sent ten of his own valiant men to graciously greet Nabal and to ask that wealthy man for a very modest provision for David and his men. While David's Ten valiant men were there in Carmel. They treated Nabal's sheep shearers very, very well. They protected them, no doubt against predatory animals and against evil men that might seek to kill or steal Nabal's sheep. But when David's men asked for a very modest provision from Nabal, Nabal spurned them. In fact, he he effectively accused them and David of being treasonous men who had broken away from their master, King Saul. When David heard of this great insult, he and his men put on their swords 
and they headed to Carmel to do away with Nabal and with all the men in his household. But Nabal's wife Abigail heard about it, and without her husband's knowledge, she gathered up a very generous provision for David's men, and she intercepted she intercepted David and his warriors on their journey to Carmel. And she humbly pleaded with David to receive her gifts and to withhold the vengeance that her foolish husband certainly deserved. She admonished David to leave personal vengeance to God so that David's own heart would not be needlessly grieved and troubled. And I believe that, that her motivation in those words was exactly as she represented it. She was seeking to be God's agent to protect David from his own impulses and his own anger. David's reply to Abigail is a beautiful acknowledgement that God was the one who sent her to him and who used her as his own agent to restrain David's hand for David's own good. David said to Abigail, Blessed be Yahweh, God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. And blessed be your discernment, and blessed be you, who have kept me this day from bloodshed and from avenging myself by my own hand. And then he said, Nevertheless, as Yahweh, God of Israel, lives, who has restrained me from harming you, unless you had come to meet me quickly, Surely there would been, have been left to Nabal until the morning light, not so much as one male. So David received from her hand what she brought to him, and he said to her, Go up to your house in peace. See, I have listened to you and granted your request. Beloved, it's vitally important that we recognize how completely God set aside every expectation we might have had about how earthly position affects the use of his people in his dealings with people. David had already been anointed as God's choice to rule over his people. But God used a woman to hold David accountable to himself, and that woman's only claim to fame was the wealth of her husband. Our accountability is through men, not to men. That's so incredibly important. Our accountability to God is through men, not to men. We'll talk a lot more uh, about how human agency and accountability touches the issue of headship and submission on a biblical basis next week. But, but what I want to make sure we all see at this point is that our accountability is through men and not to men. And that makes perfect sense considering that when we sin, it's not man's character that we violate. It's God's character. And it's not man's character that we are required to live out on earth. It's God's character. 
Once again, God's dealings with David through the agency of men and David's response to those dealings are, are very illuminating. In 2 Samuel 12, after David had become king and had been reigning as king over Israel for some time, he became way too full of himself. He committed adultery with Bathsheba, the wife of one of his own valiant warriors, Uriah the Hittite. And David conceived a child with that man's wife. After trying unsuccessfully to make it look like the child was Uriah's, David arranged the death of Uriah on the field of battle. When God confronted David over that horrible cascade of sins, God didn't do so directly. He used a faithful prophet named Nathan. When Nathan confronted David, David very earnestly repented. The sin had very far-reaching consequences in David's life and family, starting with the death of Bathsheba's child. His sin touched and hurt countless people. It affected the entire nation of Israel. But when David wrote down what he prayed to God when he asked God for forgiveness in what we know as Psalm 51, it wasn't David's sins against men that were on his heart. It was his sin against his Creator. David said to God, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. God held King David accountable through a faithful man named Nathan. But David's accountability was not to Nathan. It was to God. David understood that clearly and transformingly. And so should we. God may use a woman, a man, a child, a believer, an unbeliever, a pauper, or a king as his agent to call you or me to account at any time. But it is to God that we must answer, not to men. Men are merely agents of God. What happens when we get this wrong? Well, our failure plays out differently depending on which side of the agency equation we're on at a given time. If I'm supposed to be acting as God's agent to hold another person accountable to himself, and I confuse my role with God's role, then I will be trying to hold that person accountable to me instead of through me to God. And that will always create a train wreck. <laughs> if I do that, 
I assume moral authority that I don't possess in myself. I assume moral superiority that I don't possess. And I throw humility right out the window. I make myself the judge instead of the agent of the judge. And here's what God has to say about that every time it happens. This is Romans chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, for in that, you, in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. See, sin is the great equalizer here. Every time that we confuse our role with God's role in holding a fellow image bearer accountable, we create a minefield for ourselves and for other people, and we play straight into Satan's hands. The other side of this equation is, happens when we refuse to be held accountable to God through other people. And we wreak just as much havoc when we do that. To put it as bluntly as the book of Proverbs repeatedly puts it, if we refuse to humbly receive God's wisdom and accept God's correction through the wise people that God puts in our lives, we're fools. We're fools. Remember Abigail's husband, Nabal, whose name means fool? That's what he did. And ten days after Abigail told her husband about her intervention as God's agent to restrain the hand of King David from killing Nabal, Yahweh himself struck Nabal dead. Our willingness to be held accountable to God through any brother or sister in Christ is foundational to living rightly in the body of Christ. It's fundamental to God's design for his church. I don't have time to develop all of these passages this morning, so I'm going to give you a little homework assignment. If you can find time to do it, it will enhance your understanding of just how vital all of this is to God's intentions for His church. The assignment is simple. Read all of Ephesians chapter 4 sometime this week and pray back your agreement with God about what that chapter tells you about your agency on God's behalf in the lives of your fellow saints and about their agency on God's behalf in your life. We're going to look at a little bit at some of those passages and, and some of them we'll also, we'll also consider more deeply next week. Brothers and sisters, here is one of the most defining truths that I could ever point out to you about biblical accountability. You ready for it? <laughs> it's all vertical. It's all vertical. The only true accountability that exists for human beings is to God. Many Christians see accountability as existing on two different axes, vertical and horizontal. When they talk about vertical accountability, they mean our accountability to God. 
And when they talk about horizontal accountability, they mean our accountability to men. And the assertion that typically follows from that dichotomy, that distinction between vertical and horizontal accountability, is one that I myself used to proclaim when I was younger in the Lord. And I did so pretty zealously. That assertion is that horizontal accountability always has to take a back seat to vertical accountability. Because the accountability that really matters most is between men and God. But my problem with that analysis now that I used to embrace is that I'm pretty sure it isn't biblical. And that would make it a false dichotomy. Because biblically speaking, and that's the only way of speaking that I wish would ever come out of my mouth, there's no such thing as horizontal accountability. Bear with me a minute. In Ephesians chapter 4, starting at verse 11, God says, Paul says, and God through Paul says, <laughs> and God gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature that belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men and deceitful, their craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by that which every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Speaking the truth in love, we grow up together into Christ. Now, verse 25 of the same chapter, Ephesians 4 says, Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth to each, speak truth each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. So when he says neighbor there, he's talking about in the community of the saints. All right, so to what purpose, to what purpose? Are you and I called by God to speak truth to one another? The, the truth that Paul says in verse 21 is in Jesus? Not, not so that you will be held accountable to me or I to you. Not so that you will be conformed to me or I to you but so that we will all grow up together into one new man, the head of the body, Christ. Next week, again, Lord willing, we'll look at headship and submission, and, and we're going to see a perfectly consistent pattern in which every person that God puts in a headship role in the church or in any other context is actually just a pass-through. 
because in the final in, in the final analysis every man and every woman answers only to God. So in Ephesians 5:21 Paul says to all of us be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. In the next verse he says wives be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. In Ephesians 6 verses 5 through 9 he says to slaves be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ, not by way of eye service as men-pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. And then he says, verse 7, with good will render service as to the Lord and not to men not to men. Knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. And then he talks to masters and he says, masters, do the same things to them that I'm telling them to do to you and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven and there's no partiality with him. He doesn't care if you're a master or a slave on earth. See, Paul does not say, slaves, work hard to please your masters on earth because you're accountable to them and to God. He says both to slaves and to their earthly masters, fulfill your role as a service to God alone and not to men. Because whether you're a slave on earth or a master on earth, your only real master is God. In the same way in Colossians chapter 3, verses 23 and 24, Paul says, Whatever you do, do your work with all your heart as for the Lord rather than for men. Not as for the Lord and for men. As for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. Period. End of sentence. Beloved, we have an audience of one. God uses human agents to hold us accountable, but our accountability is always vertical. It is accountability to God and explicitly not to men. Realizing that we are nothing more than agents, instruments in God's correction of other human beings and in his, in his call to, to men and women to be accountable to him, calls for a dramatically different approach to correcting than would be the case if, if we were somehow more than agents. The number one thing that you and I must have firmly in our minds and hearts when we step into the role of corrector of another person on God's behalf is that we're utterly unqualified to act in that role. Based on anything about our own character, other than Christ in us. Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 3 says, Brethren, 
Even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted, bearing one another's burdens, uh, bear one another's burdens and thereby, uh, thereby fulfill the law of Christ. And then listen to verse 3. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. <laughs> you know what God's telling us there? He's something and we're nothing except agents. When God puts you in the role of corrector in his dealings with another person, he intends for you to know that the ground that you're standing on, the only ground, is Christ alone. You are nothing in that paradigm. He is everything. Christ is everything. You could just as legitimately be on the other side of that agency any time as the corrected rather than the corrector. And that time will certainly come at many points in your life. The one we represent in all that we do on earth is the one who makes this declaration about his own nature and character in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. Then Yahweh passed by in front of Moses and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh Elohim, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding, overflowing in steadfast covenant love and truth, who keeps covenant love to thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave sin unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. For us whose due punishment for our sin has fallen on Christ purely by the grace of God, the question that that declaration of God about himself sets before us in big, bold letters is this. Are you and I compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and overflowing in steadfast covenant love and truth in all of our dealings with other human beings? Beloved, because we are merely agents, that means that it's never our authority that makes us useful to God for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness in his dealings with others. It also means that, that the content of that teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness absolutely does not come from us. It doesn't come from us. So where does it come from? Many of you know exactly where I'm going here. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. This is dirt simple. 
This is dirt simple, beloved. In order for anything that comes out of my mouth to actually be authoritative in any way in the life of another person, it has to exactly match up with the Word of God. If it's my opinion, my perspective, or my assumptions, or my calculated guess that I'm presenting to, to another person in an effort to correct or to guide them, it comes with no moral authority whatsoever. There is a true wisdom that you as a child of God have to offer to me. And Proverbs says that that true wisdom is more precious than gold. It is an adornment around my neck and a protection to my soul and to my body. It is a treasure to me. But that true wisdom, brother and sister, has none of its origin in you. It's God's wisdom. At best, you are nothing more than an agent, a pass-through for that true wisdom. And the way you and I come to bear that true wisdom to other human beings is by the work of the indwelling Holy Spirit in and through and by the written Word of God. Period. There's no other data source for the intimate personal knowledge of God. There's no other place to find everything pertaining to life and godliness than the Holy Spirit working through the written Word of God. I've told my children countless times that I don't consider my opinions about what they believe or how they should live their lives to be worth a plug nickel. When they were kids, under my authority, they had to submit to my decisions and my whims as long as I didn't require them to violate God's Word. But now that they're adults, the simple reality is if, if they can't corroborate what they hear from me with what they find in the Bible, they should feel free to ignore it. I believe that, and I mean it, and so should you. Beloved, if you are holding your brothers and sisters accountable to conform themselves to your political views or to your choice of candidates for public office or to your philosophy of ec economics or to your music preferences or even to your preferred way of doing church, but you cannot very clearly point out to them in the Bible that God requires them to agree with your views on those matters, then you must agree with God that those views carry no moral authority whatsoever. Period. Romans 14 says that in matters that God has not clearly addressed in His Word, you certainly must do what your conviction before God demands of you. But there's something else that the entire first half of that chapter absolutely forbids you to do. And that is to ever impose your convictions in such matters on anyone else. Read the chapter, beloved. Half of it says you don't get to impose your convictions 
in matters that God has not clearly addressed on anybody else ever. Last thing I want to say is this. I hope that we all get what everything that we've seen this morning implies when it comes to the critical importance of knowing God's Word. It means that if we want to be willing and useful agents of God in the lives of others, we have to know His Word. It's astonishing how much of what Christians call wise counsel is just man-derived foolishness pretending to be God's truth. It's really not all that hard to tell which is which. It's either in the Bible or it isn't. Colossians 3, 16 and 17 says to every redeemed child of God, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another, with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Beloved, if you cannot back up your exhortations and corrections of others with clear revelation from the Bible, keep those exhortations and corrections to yourself. And pray that God will use better equipped instruments of his choosing to deal with whatever is lacking in that other person. And then prayerfully, prayerfully, Make it your most uncompromising daily pursuit to know and hide God's living and active word in your heart. That applies to every one of us all the time. We have to go to the word of the Lord to know the Lord of the word. Pray with me. Loving Father, make us humble, gracious, God-dependent, agents, so that through even us, you might move in the heart of every saint and of all of your church, both to will and to work for your good pleasure. We ask this in Jesus' name, and we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen.